This is Reflections on Common Ground, a collaborative limited-run podcast between Portland Meet Portland and the Portland Art Museum. My name is Manuel Padilla, and I'm the executive director of Portland Meet Portland. In this series, we talk to local immigrants and refugees in Portland, Oregon, exploring life as a refugee and reflecting on the Common Ground exhibition by Fuzzle Shake, currently at the Portland Art Museum until May 20th, 2018. In the first three episodes, the students in the RISE program at David Douglas High School shared their experiences growing up as third culture youth, their impressions of the photographs in Fuzzle Shake's exhibition, and what their lives are like now living in Portland. In this fourth and final episode, two refugees and their Portland Meet Portland mentors discuss their experiences since moving to Portland, what it's like to have a mentor, and how seeing Fuzzle Shake's photographs impacted them. Um, I wanted to begin the podcast by just asking everyone to introduce themselves. And you can go around the table and, and do that as you like. Hi, I'm Susie Steinman, um, co-founder of Portland Meet Portland and now working in development. Um, happy to be here with some of our young refugee members in our community. Hi, my name is CEO and I'm a student of PCC and I'm happy to be here. My name is Bella Silaniokuse. I'm from Tanzania. I am happy to be in America. <laughs> My name is Amy Faust, and I've been a volunteer with Portland Meet Portland uh, since it started. And I've worked with Bell and Sila and become friends with Bell and Sila as a result. Sio, do you want to introduce yourself again and, and tell people um, what your country of origin is, where you come from as well? Yes, um, I was born in Thailand, but my parents were born in Myanmar, so they had to flee to Thailand, so that's where I was born. Thank you. And um, can you both, Amy and Susie, uh, tell me from your perspective, uh, what is PMP as an organization? What is Portland Meet Portland as an organization? Well, as a volunteer, I can say that when I explain to people what I do through it, I feel like it's an opportunity to connect with people in the community that you wouldn't have an opportunity to meet otherwise. And for the most part, they are refugees, but also immigrants. And so if you're walking around Portland and you feel like you're only meeting the same kind of person all the time and you'd like to expand your horizons and maybe help some people at the same time, it's a great way to do that because you end up forming relationships with people that you might not have been able to otherwise. Uh, I concur with what Amy says. That is the intended mission and vision for the organization as Portland has developed over the last 20 years that I've been here and working with refugee communities, immigrant communities since then. I've noticed this geographic divide that has pushed a lot of people of color and lower income people out further and further out. So the opportunities to meet each other across those divides are more and more difficult. So we created Portland Meet Portland to create kind of a human bridge over those geographic divides for us to meet each other and get beyond the statement I hear a lot, which is Portland is so white. And I say, well, not where I work. <laughs> Come over and visit us and meet some of the, the people who are also here in our community. 
Um, it would be great uh, to get a sense starting off of um, how you how you all became uh, matched as a, a mentorship pair um, at, at Portland Meet Portland. Well, I met Susie through our children and started working with her. Uh, we started with uh, coaching citizenship. So I learned how to coach refugees to pass the, cit the citizenship test, which they generally do at the five-year mark when they've been here for five years. And so through Susie, I learned how to do that. And I think either my second or third uh, person that I worked with was Bell and Sila. And uh, we really connected and she passed her test. And then we just became friends and we're just connected in a lot of different ways now because I, she has kids and I know all of her kids and I've known one of them since he was born and Susie is good friends with Bell and Sila too. So it's turned into more of a friendship over the years, but it started with coaching the, the citizenship. Bell and Sila, was it difficult to study for and pass your citizenship exam? Yes, it was difficult, but it, <laughs> it was difficult, but Amy was helping me to to explain, to use science, to make me to understand. Were you were you nervous when you took the exam? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> was the exam officer nice to you? That exam was take me like thirty minutes. Even some people give take like uh, fifteen minutes because that guy I met asked me a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. But you were successful. You passed. Yes. Congratulations. That's great. Thank she you. was a great student. She was. She had a lot going on at the time, but she always learned very quickly, and uh, I knew she was going to pass. And what about uh, you, Susie, and CO? How did you? And you're pointing at each other, and someone will go first. <laughs> I. How did, we meet? How did you meet me? I met Susie through a friend of mine whose name is KK. Um, they needed somebody in the translator as um, for the citizen class, and I told them I was available, and that's when I meet Susie. So um, I met initially another young Burmese refugee um, through a group of weavers whose weaving work is actually here and part of the uh, Common Ground exhibit. And one of the grandmothers is one of the weavers. And at one point we, we were hoping to have their crafts sold at one of the summer park blocks, art walk fairs. And the grandmothers wanted to come and demonstrate how they were weaving, but they didn't feel comfortable not being able to speak to the passers-by. And so the granddaughter, Kumawa, decided to come to interpret for her grandmother that day. And that's where I met her for the first time. And then through her, I met KK, um, who's also a Burmese young woman, and that's uh, CEO's good friend. So it really starts with knowing one or two people and then uh, kind of expands from there quite quickly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I recruited uh, all of these young women actually um, to be interpreters in some of our formal citizenship classes uh, as a way both to 
um, have them themselves learn what is what do you have to know to pass a citizenship test as well as to offer interpreting when complicated concepts come up such as what is representation how is it that you are the government so sometimes it's really helpful to have somebody with obviously native language abilities to to step in and have a conversation around that um, and also to allow the younger folks in the communities who also speak really good English and are kind of future leaders to to learn how to do the citizenship test so that they can provide that for their communities in the future and thus make our model sustainable beyond the current funding cycles. And uh, KK also um, has uh, taken some pictures and featured some from some people from her community. Uh, and one of those people is CO. So you have your photograph up uh, at the end of the Common Ground exhibition in the Portland Meet Portland room as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, what was it like for you to to begin to be sort of a mentor to your own community when you were uh, when you were translating um, for the citizenship exam classes? They were happy that I was there because they were relying on me because they didn't know a lot of words but I got I wasn't really good at translating and then it kind of helped me know more of my language and also the English words and I thought it was really helpful because it was helping me also so you feel like you got as much out of it sometimes as you gave yes oh that's great um so I wanted to talk uh, a little bit before we got into exploring um, mentorship uh, and cross-cultural relationship building through mentorship. I wanted to give you all an opportunity um, to talk a little bit about your experience visiting the Common Ground exhibition, um, as I think you all have at this point. Um, so I would love to just hear some of your initial reactions or thoughts or, or feelings to that um, as mentors uh, and as um, refugees who now are are um, integrated here into uh, Portland and into the society here in the U.S. What were some of your feelings um, and thoughts looking at the photographs? I was really surprised how other country had to flee also because I didn't know we were like my country were the only people who was fleeing from their own country. So it wasn't only us that struggled, but other country as well. So I was really surprised by that. And I was sad about it too, how we can't live in our own country, but we have to move out to find a better living and a better opportunity and to have a better life. And then I also found some women in the Indians, Nepalese, how their parents gave, um, how their parents sent them away with a guy so they can get money and I found that so distracting because I was so happy that my parents didn't let me get married really early where they can get money so I was really sad to see how their parents sent them away to get married at a young age and also to get abused by their husbands Valencia how did you react to seeing some of the photographs in the exhibition, the Common Ground exhibition? Okay. This time maybe I'm sorry because you know I speak a little bit English. <laughs> That's okay. 
Your English is fine. Your English is great, yeah. <laughs> it's better than yeah. you think. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. You just speak how you would normally speak. Well, let me let me just uh, bring something up that I know that we were talking about when we were when we were visiting the exhibition, and that is you saw a woman um, in one of the refugee camps who was wearing a shirt that was the exact shirt that you had when you were living in the refugee camp um, as well. And so, can you tell us how you kind of reacted when you saw a picture of a woman wearing the same shirt that you were given when you were living there? Oh. <laughs> yeah, for. That shirt she was wearing is kind of like how they was want to give for a woman for to be down. Mm-hmm. Even it was in a refugee camp, it was want to be like to feel free. It was in a hard life, but even the people help in the refugee camp, they was kind of like woman. You have to be under the men. You have to listen to men for everything he wants. They give to us from young already for every cross. Give to the shirt to say, this shirt means you have to be under that man. We was not happy by because we don't have anything to wear. You have to wear it. That's amazing. I, I don't think anyone would know that about that picture and understand what that shirt represented unless they heard it from someone who uh, experienced wearing that and, and experienced what it meant. That's that's a really incredible story. Yeah, they were saying after that, because some people have some cross, they said that cross, I know I don't want to wear this one because I don't want to be like... And, yeah. That's why some people are sad, and then they sell for cheap. If you have a little bit money, you can buy it, wear it. So with more money, you could buy different shirts. So if you're mm-hmm. wearing that shirt, it means you have no money, and you're kind of at the bottom of the ranking. Mm-hmm. And another thing that you were saying when we were standing in front of that photograph and talking about that was that you were saying that UNHCR um, is the one who was giving those shirts out. And it's interesting to me, maybe UNHCR didn't realize themselves what they were doing by giving these shirts to these to these women. It, it's really incredible, I think. It's not that the company said that, but it's kind of like Tanzania people work for mm-hmm. the company. Mm-hmm. They say that mm-hmm. because their shirts have like underpants, like oh, underwear. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Same. It's matching. Like one piece, all the yes. Down. Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Be careful what you give away. <laughs> I have heard the same thing about Tom's, mm-hmm. the shoes that oh. their uh, philosophy is to give a pair away for every pair that someone buys here. Yeah. And I don't, no offense to the company, but. Uh, my friend who was in Cambodia said that it was embarrassing to wear Toms because it meant that you had no money to buy flip-flops. So flip-flops are much more practical because it's so hot. And yeah. so wearing Toms is just a sign that you can't buy your own shoes. Yeah. Uh, when I was working in Haiti, um, 
one of the things uh, that was really interesting is just realizing um, very quickly talking with people that the clothes that people were often wearing were called Kennedy's and it's because of the influx of um, of secondhand clothing that was disposed of from not being able to be sold here in the US and it just flooded the the, the Haitian market uh, destroying the textile industry basically because mm. nobody would go and, and buy things that were made from Haitians. And so you still oftentimes, because this still happens, you see like Chick-fil-A t-shirts and, you know, like people wearing things that are, are total, totally uh, from the U.S. Mm -hmm. and, and are, are not culturally relevant at all for, mm -hmm. for the people uh, living there. Um, but sometimes this idea of trying to uh, provide something to somebody in a charitable way um, can have some pretty devastating um, impacts both socially and and economically, right? Right. It seems like a good idea, but then in practice, it ends up not being. Yeah. Right. Right. I wanted to know what CEO thought of your own picture. Looking at your own picture in the museum, how did you feel? I was happy to see my picture up there because I know that people want to know about other culture, and then being up there. And like people putting questions down there, I think it's really cool. Seeing that book was really great because they have a little blank book below her picture for anyone who wants to ask her a question, they can ask her a question. And very basic questions, but interesting, like do they have streets in a refugee camp? Uh, what's your favorite food from where you from where you came from? And then nice messages too, like stay strong, you're so great, good luck in school. It was really powerful. It was motivated to see, like, make me motivated seeing that kind of questions. How, how does it? How does it make you feel seeing your seeing yourself up there, um, represented as equally as a refugee and as a local? I'm happy to be up there, but I never really been like. My picture never been put up on there, so it's kind of new to me. And but I'm really happy to see my picture being up there. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to give Valencia a chance to talk a little bit too about um, some of the other things that she saw in the pictures, uh, like the tent um, that's in the first photograph actually that you see just walking right into the exhibition and what were you telling us about the tent um and about um amy talking to you ab about how we like to go camping in tents sometimes uh <laughs> as americans and go to the mountains and and cook on the fire and, and set up a tent yeah when i saw that tent they remind me a lot of stuff i saw because when I was in a refugee camp, they give to us down that tent. Even you have, because we was eight people in my family. They give to us only one tent. We lived in, we sleep together, even my parents. I lived to that tent like one year. But my mom come to pass away and then that time I did, we didn't know. We don't have a, this grave yet. Graveyard. Oh yeah, a graveyard. Yeah. He was there with 
with us in the dark tent, even though I small for two days. Oh. When I look at that, make me to remember our stuff. And then after that, they come to take her out to find a place to pour her. It was so bad. If I look at the tent, I remember about how life I was in there, how I was living with my family. And then because we come to find how to how to put the another house different in that tent because that tent was very, very hard. In a refugee camp is only something they have to help in a in a people. Just to to use that tent because it's easy to build. No tree. We don't have anything to use it. It was just a flat ground with no trees, no yes. trees around. Yes. It must have been very hot. Yeah. yeah. Eight it's, people in one tent. Yeah. Yeah. And no, no light, was kind. Right? No right. She said at night everyone just mm-hmm. you feel around feel because around. you have no light. Yeah. And you were you had also seen a picture where it was a picture of the camp that you used to live in. Um, there was a little boy sitting on a on a chair, um, and you were talking with Amy about life between the two camps that were the the camp because it was split. Um, between the people from Burundi and people from Rwanda. Yeah, we was half set. Before it was kind, people was, t- we was together. After that, because we don't speak, it's kind of the same language, but the words kind of different. The sound is different. They come to say, oh, this one is from Rwanda, this one from Burundi. Started to kill each other. After that, they come to separate us. People from Burundi, it goes to camp. That camp was Rukore, and then another camp was Lumasi. That camp Lumasi was people from Rwanda. People from Rwanda is kind of like, they know a lot of stuff. They are smart. Just they keep looking how they can be, they can have a better life. They found, they started to come to, in the Burundi people, to ask them about food. Even if we was have same food, because in a refugee camp, they count how many people in the family, and then give them food much in their family. But people from Rwanda come night with gun. They can take like kids say, if you don't give all your food, we kill your baby. Hmm. You can give to them all their food. But Tanzania migration come to keep looking how how that pro- how that problem come from. After that, because people from Uruguay is kind of like smart, they find. Uh, I know the, it's kind, someone was selling people's head. Uh, severing people's heads. And selling them. And selling it. Yeah, selling that head for people. Night, come, 
cake because we were we was living in a tent. You know that tent you can cut it. Take it's her. very easy to yeah. to break in, right? Yes, yeah. they can cut it, take out kids or someone else. Can it be easy to cut it? Take the head and then sell it. If someone missing, it was people from Burundi. And then can you find the body, Rumasi. Tanzania say, oh, these problems from people from Uganda. They bring all this stuff. And then it's many, many times was see that guy was, was half with that order for head because he, that guy was using the head to catching his elephant. Mm. Alligators. Oh, yeah. Alligators. Yes. Using it as bait mm -hmm. to catch mm. animals. Mm. To, yeah. To, they were catching the alligators to eat? No, they were say in the stomach you have like with gourd. Okay. And then it does skin if they have something making. The leather. Uh, the for leather the from the skin. Stuff. So the yeah. meat and the leather they would use to to for food and to make to make clothing or bags or something like that. Yeah. Okay. That's why that guy was make order to people from Uganda to go to kill people to take to him like head, mm. only head. After that, government come to know is people from Uganda do it. They bring like soldier, soldier to come shooting everybody in the ref the company Rumasi is a soldier from, from Tanzania come to shoot everybody. When they Burundi. found out what they were doing to the Burundi, wow. uh, people in the Burundi yeah. camp, they just came and just opened fire on a bunch of people in the Rwanda right. camp. It's, it's amazing to me, um, having worked in refugee camps, how there's this sort of tension between the, the safety that a, a, a refugee camp is supposed to provide, and it often does to, to some degree, or sometimes to a large degree, but also there's just so much vulnerability uh, that exists in a refugee camp as well, and so many things that happen within communities in a refugee camp that um, that are, are that that uh, are very difficult for people to to live through experiences that are very difficult for people to live through. It's a place that you would only be if you have literally no other choice. I mean, when Bell and Sila talks about what was going on in Burundi when they left, it was, you know, a civil war, the same as Rwanda. And so people were just being killed and kids were being recruited to be soldiers and they'd say, we'll kill your family if we can't have your kid. And so you have to leave. But then, like you're saying, you get to a, a camp and you think, oh, great, there's some order here. But clearly there wasn't a whole lot of safety where she was. What's your reaction hearing the story? I see, I heard a lot from my community. When we were living in the camp, we were really scared because they talked about cutting people's head off. So we weren't allowed to go to really far place. I don't know if that was to scare us, but I heard a lot of that kind of story in my community when I was living in the refugee camp and it really scared us and we couldn't really go anywhere and I found it really scared. It sounds like you felt a little bit trapped. Yes. Wow. 
Um, how do you think um, the photographs help us to better understand uh, perhaps refugee experiences of, of refugees here in Portland? And how do you think maybe it, it um, keeps us maybe from understanding refugees in some way? Did you think that looking at those photos would help people understand your experience that you had? Did you feel like that that, that would help people understand or not? Yeah, they can understand because if you look at the pictures, real pictures, something happened. Even if for now, it's keep happening. Even if my family, they text me, they show me how they looks like. It's kind of like that pictures over there. Her family is still in, so half of her family is still in a camp in Uganda, so they're still living like that. But one thing that Balancilla said when we were walking through, she said, why would people want to look at this? Why would they take time out of their day and come look at this? And I just said, because Americans don't understand this. They haven't, if they haven't been there, they don't understand. And maybe it's helpful for them to understand and see it firsthand and see the faces of the people to realize how important it is to support the aid that we provide and to support having more refugees allowed into this country mm-hmm. and that they won't maybe they won't feel it unless they see the pictures for her she lived it she doesn't want to walk around and look at a bunch of pictures it's not her idea of fun it's no one's idea of fun but it's important what about you all i think it helped the people from the united states to see these kind of pictures because they will get to see what we go through and where we get put in the refugee in the refugee camp. So I think it's really helpful that the picture up in the museum. Uh, I have worked with a large range of refugees uh, over a number of years, and seeing the transformation, even from meeting you when you had first arrived. You know, you had been here maybe a year or two when I met you. You're speaking to Bell and Sila, right? I'm speaking to Bell yeah. and Sila <laughs> and seeing where you are now and how far you've come in your journey, even after arriving here. Um, I think there's a really positive message that <clears throat> that needs to be sent about the strength and the perseverance that many refugees carry with them and establish when they arrive here. And there are countless, countless stories of people where I've seen from arriving to where they are five or 10 years later, that is really remarkable, especially given the difficult hardships and traumas people have been through. And I just met the other day, yesterday again, um, one of one of our um, refugees that we work with and He's transformed, he's light, he's happy, and he's been through a lot. So that hope is something that, by extension, in that last room with Portland Meet Portland, it's there, like the image of you and your story. Um, it, it would just be great to see another exhibit uh, on the heels of this that focuses on the journey from starting on day one here and then through time after arrival could be really powerful as well. The um, I mentioned to you when we were 
in the Portland Meet Portland room that the whole reason that I ended up getting involved with this was that I just happened to read that book, What is the What? And it's the interesting thing about that book is it's technically a novel, but it's actually a real person's story. Uh, he's a Sudanese refugee. And the thing that really struck me when I read it was, wow, he went through so much. And then you think, if you're if, if you don't know anything about it, you think, and then he got to America and everything was fine. But in that book, it shows so clearly how everything is not fine when you get here for for a lot of reasons. And that was what made me think, wouldn't it be nice if we all reached out a little bit more and just made these transitions easier? And that was why I came to Susie and talked to her about doing this. And there is just so much that you can do to bridge, like you're saying, to bridge the gap. Aside from just enjoying being friends with someone, there are little things every day that you realize there's no other way for them to learn this. And my favorite example, because sorry, but it's kind of funny, is that <laughs> we were talking one time about politics and I said um, something about Hillary Clinton and you said, Hillary Clinton's in jail. And I said, no, no, she's not in jail. And I mean, we all think, of course, now we all talk about fake news, but this was two, three years ago. I said, where did you see that? And she said, in the newspaper. And I said, were you at the grocery store? She said, yes. And I said, were you in line? And was it like a square and it had color pictures on the front? She said, yes. And I said, well, nothing in those papers is true. Now, how on earth are you going to know that? How are you going to think, oh, right, that's true and that's not true? I mean, they're just little things like that that when you become friends with someone, you realize, oh, okay, I, I can help with this kind of stuff, you know, just yeah. a little weird stuff. Yeah, at the very least, right? Right, right. <laughs> Well, that's actually a really good place to transition, um, and I, I wanna I wanna lead us into talking a little bit about mentorship, and what mentorship means to to both of the people who are involved in in the mentorship match and the work that Portland Meet Portland does around that. And I would just want to start off by asking, you know, why why. Susie, did you start an organization that was founded on this idea of mentorship? And, and how does Portland Meet Portland define mentorship? I guess it, my, my initial foray into cross-cultural learning and the challenges of it, I guess, stem from my own immigration story arriving here from Europe. And even though I look white and I look and act American, I actually didn't grow up here. And I remember my English was very bad and my spelling is still terrible. <laughs> um, and the challenge of really meeting other kids in high school was not easy. And so I think it started there with, you know, if you had a friend, at least one friend, that can take you a long way. And then uh, later on, I joined the Peace Corps and went to Morocco uh, at 22 and I am still now 30 more years and 30 years in touch with my Peace Corps family and they were my mentor family you know I arrived in this dusty little town and was wandering around with my backpack on wondering where I was gonna live and this woman rushed out from her little sewing shop and said come and have lunch and I said okay <laughs> and then the next thing I knew I lived with them for two years and 30 <laughs> years later we're still in touch with each other. And I think many of us have traveled in other places in the world where you can stop people and ask for help and people are 
happy and willing and ready to do that. And unfortunately, I don't I don't see the same kind of value on hospitality here in this country. And that's why I wanted to establish this mentorship program that could be a two-way stream. That goal, the third goal of, of Peace Corps is to bring your cultural learning back here. So I feel like I've kind of honored that in, in the organization and, and looking at the mentor relationship as a two-way street. I can help you with certain things about adjusting in life here because I understand the systems better, but I'm also learning so much from you because I don't know much about your world and your culture. And so you're looking at CEO now, right? I'm looking at okay. CEO and Bell and Sila and all of the other families that I work with. So the mentorship piece for me is really the core of Portland Me Portland and by mentorship, I mean really establishing a relationship of friendship and trust. And it begins with a service and a project like English or citizenship or learning how to get your art into a gallery or, you know, whatever whatever the service area is. But it, the idea is I'm going to match you for six months and hopefully the chemistry is right and you stay friends forever. So what was the process like when you first both both of you all four of you but both of you in your in your groups what was the experience like when you first really started to establish like a mentorship relationship together well we've worked together i've also taught classes at portland meet portland which is great but we worked together one-on-one -on -one at balancilla's house so you just end up learning more about the person and meet their kids and you know more about their daily life so it's a kind of an easy bridge into becoming friendly in other ways um so that's that was how we started out and then once the citizenship happened we just stayed in touch because there are times when bell and Sila will get a letter or something and she'll just think i have no idea what this means and she'll show it to me and i think oh i don't know what it means either but then i figure it out <laughs> and we figure it out and we and we move forward that way so it's uh there are just many moments like that but then there are also moments where we spend time i spend time with her kids because i i really like her kids and uh it's just turned into more of a that kind of relationship what did it feel like for you, Bill and Tila, to, to get to know Amy? Yeah, for me, to know Amy is kind. First, this can I say is to thank you for Susie because Susie make, make me to know Amy and then we come to be friend if I don't have if I don't have someone to help me to read for English, I text to Amy. I ask, he can help me to know about this one. Always she come to help me for to read the railroad and then help me figure out that paper because I have five kids. I don't have enough to go to school to learn English. <laughs> I still like speak a little bit. I can understand a little bit, but always M is close to me, help me a lot. But I want to give you credit because she also works full time while she has five kids and she handles a lot on her own. But then there are just things that that are confusing to her. And I also want to point out Susie, because even though Susie, even though Bell and Seal and I became 
close through Susie, she's still maintained real connection with Balancilla and with pretty much everyone. I mean, she, I can't, it's incredible how many people she still connects with and, and helps. So. What about you, CEO? I have seen so many pictures of you and Susie together um, out in the uh, the forest someplace or in a river or uh, at some place out in the city. Like what what was it like for you to to sort of see yourself in relationship as a as a mentor and a mentee uh, with someone like Susie? Susie has helped me a lot, not just um not just when I, not just when I need to call her up, but she helps me like with school stuff. She helps me with if I have like things going on, if I'm stressed, I will call her up and talk to her about it because I believe that she, I trust her and I can tell her anything. So we build a good relationship where I can tell her anything and I'm not afraid to call her i'm not afraid to text her i've been i had two mentor with me for a capstone and i'm scared not scared but like i'm not comfortable texting them or call them like i do with Susie. with Susie, i can call her really quick or text her and then she will like if she if she doesn't pick up my call she will come back and call me so i think it's really nice this is her. the the portland state university capstone uh, that you, that you are a mentorship match with one of the students in the in the capstone that that I, Susie is is running, correct? Yes. Right. So I mean, there's a, a really big difference between the experience of that first time when you're just kind of getting to know the person and and the amount of trust that you have with them, and and if you don't have very much trust built up, it's hard to do some simple things just like reach out and and call somebody or text somebody or um, or feel it feel like the communication is at a point where you can um, sort of do it at the spur of the moment it, there's a little bit more hesitation there right but with someone like Susie one that you've built a really strong relationship with over time you feel like you can just be more yourself yes. uh, and 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 feel like you can uh, hand hand over yourself to, to that other person and and just uh, and just experience sort of the joy of being together yes yeah mm -hmm. um i want to speak a little bit to the going in the woods and in the river experiences <laughs> oh yeah that i have <clears throat> engaged some of my youth leaders in one of which was a two-day um retreat a workshop retreat uh to actually focus on leadership development what are the characteristics that are important in leadership a lot of the young women that I work with, uh, refugees, are leaders in their communities. Um, and I wanted to have a concentrated time to really talk about, as third culture kids, kids who are straddled between their refugee parents who are more embedded still in their first culture and then the US culture and being in the middle of that, how does that affect? and how is navigating leadership difficult in that? And we had a lot of really amazing conversations. Um, we went up to the woods and stayed at a cabin that I have that's off the grid and off they went for a little walk in the woods in the Gifford Pinchot and they came back with huge sacks full of fern, like the tops of ferns. And they're like, we used to collect these in the refugee camps. We're gonna cook them up and make salad. 
<laughs> and so we had fern salad. Was it good? It was delicious, you know. And I learned something myself, you yeah. know, uh, in very unexpected ways. So thank you for sharing that with me. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Um, what what are have been some of the the challenges of connecting in your in your mentorship pairs? Um, what are some of the things that you you feel like you've had to overcome um, in order to kind of remain in relationship with one another? I don't know that we have challenges being connected. I just feel like Belencila has so much going on that I feel for her, like I wish she could have more friends and friendships, but she has to be raising her kids and working and navigating these systems, you know, so much red tape and and she just doesn't have time for that. So I would say that for her, probably it would be that she doesn't she doesn't have time. Uh, other than that, I don't think we really have had trouble connecting. That's great. <laughs> Do you feel like that's true, Belencila? Like you you're just so swamped, you're so busy that it's hard for you sometimes to sort of pick your head up and and yeah. look around. Yeah, I'm so busy <laughs> because. Always we have to go to work and then take my kids to school, go pick up my kids. Just only me I do it. And then I, my job this time is so hard to me because now I'm pregnant. I have to do everything myself. What do you do for work? Housekeeping to make me bed. You know, I just read something uh, in the news today where John Kelly was telling NPR that he thought that immigrants and refugees were just too lazy oh. to, to integrate or to assimilate <laughs> into I also society. Saw something about not having skills. Yeah, they, 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 don't, they don't speak English and so, and they're not very educated. So, you know, that's why they have a difficult time. <sighs> Uh, being here and, and 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 assimilating or integrating in with uh, with the rest of American society, and I, I just think about all of my experiences with actual immigrants and refugees, and all the stories that I hear from uh, both the the people who are mentors with them and the the, the refugees themselves, especially like Bell and Celia. Your story, I think, it just exemplifies exactly how much uh, people who migrate. Uh, or who are resettled to, to this country have to overcome to even start to think about something like integrating or, or I mean, and also just, I mean, who is saying that having, taking care of your kids and having a job and, you know, tr trying to like be a good community member is not being integrated into US society. That to me, that's what uh, what's I think so confusing. Oh, and, and being around people like Balancila makes me feel lazy. I mean, it makes me realize how much <laughs> time I have as a human being who works a job and has a child. I still have so much time compared to her. Mm. I have so much privilege in so many ways, not just not just talking about money, just there are things that that make that's one of the things about meeting people like Balancila and CEO and their stories. For one thing, what they've been through, I mean, I don't want to get in, but some of the details that I was hearing about things that Balancila has been through, to imagine going through that and then just saying, 
well, but I'm just going to keep going, just keep moving forward, keep on trucking. And it's just mind blowing to think that you wouldn't just curl up after that and say, I'm done. You know, they instead they they just are very determined to work and raise their children. Belenciela's oldest son is on a full scholarship at Jesuit and he's gets great grades and he's just uh, he's it just makes me so proud to see what's happening there. And so when you bring that up, it boy, I can't even it just makes me so mad. <laughs> and CEO, you I mean, you're an incredibly busy person as well. I mean, from just, I don't know if you're still doing this, but I mean, you're going to school. I know that you're going to school, um, but you are also driving back and forth to Hood River and helping uh, someone run a sushi restaurant. And and you were just like, and you're also kind of out and about in your own community and you're, you're uh, contributing to um, the, the, the church that you go to and I just, it's really incredible to me how you kind of fit all this into your life. <laughs> it, it's hard. It's really hard, but they needed my help. So I want to give them my time. But sometimes it's okay. I learned from Susie that it's okay to say no to them when you're not available. So I try to give myself more time. And I s- stopped working at um, Hood River because it's too far. I'm starting to work because they move a different store. So I'm, I'm starting to work in downtown after school is done while going to school. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things we did talk about in our leadership seminar was um, boundaries. And in in the world you live in, in the communities, for the leaders, for the community leaders, it's a a 24-hour-a-day job, and it never stops. And so I've been coaching my young leaders not to burn out, but to have some healthy boundaries so that they can sustain their enthusiasm to help their communities for a longer period of time. Yeah, that's it's interesting because, you know, you were talking about your experience in Morocco, Susie, and someone just bounding out of their out of their shop and offering you food. And two years later, you're you're still living with them and and uh, they're still supporting you. And um, so there's this. Uh, for many cultures and that and many communities that are refugees here in Portland, this sort of exuberance for embracing other other people um, is something that we just don't necessarily share culturally and something that we can deeply learn from, I think. And at the same time, um, there is this idea of like c- trying to construct boundaries for yourself a little bit. and and as a as a young um, refugee woman, being able to say no sometimes, and kind of re- rejuvenate yourself and recharge yourself a little bit, uh, and not and not necessarily feeling like you have to say yes to everything, can also be of value uh, from time to time as well, right? So I just see that piece as being really exemplifying what mentorship and cross cultural relationship building does for us, and in terms of learning the value of the different cultural perspectives that each of us. Can bring and and creating a new culture out of that i think that's just remarkable i can't remember who i was with but it was like with my kids in carpool when they were younger what gets said in this car stays in this car mm-hmm. i have a lot of wonderful conversations with my families and friends in the refugee communities when we're in the car mm-hmm. and it stays in the car mm-hmm. it's a safe place for us to talk if one was a fly <laughs> on the wall <laughs> I have a question. You have a question? <laughs> yeah. 
please ask. Yes, I want to know about how one if we talk like this this kind of talking, how this one can help for people to understand about the refugee camp and then maybe they can understand about left people lives in the refugee camp. They can help in them to bring them here America because our people in the refugee camp always working hard. If they want to make America better, bring our refugee camp here, we can work. Because, you know, even in my job, I worked making bed. Otherwise, I can make 20 rooms, two beds in, bed in one room. Even I'm pregnant. I work same like someone is not pregnant. They ask me, why are you used for working like that? Sometimes they think maybe use energy, but because I live in a hard life, here I can eat, go to work. In Africa, you cannot have much food to eat, but morning, go to work, go to find job, go to find someone can clean house or go on a farm to look at how you can eat. In Africa, eat, in refugee camp, we eat one day. We, we eat only dinner. We don't eat much like here. So all day long you're working and you're hungry. Mm-hmm. But here, we can say it's better because we have it. We, can, we have food, we can go to work. For me, to me, to be here is good. I wish if they, if they're looking at that picture for people who in the refugee, they can help people in the refugee to bring them here. That's a great point that here are all these hard workers who if you gave them a meal and a job would be here doing a great job at their job. That, is that what you're saying? And that we should maybe think more about bringing them over because they're such hard-working people? Yeah, because people grew, grew up in the refugee camp, they know how to work, they know everything. Even if it's a hard job, they can say, I can do it. Me, I try many, many jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to work in a UPS. For packaging. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was very, very hard. My supervisor was asking me, what happened to you? You work like a man. You work like a man? <laughs> like a man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But because I live No, you work like a woman. Yeah. That's what right. you should have said. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he saw me say, I work like a man. Even I'm a woman because I live in a hard life. It was not easy. Yeah, you can work like 12 hours, no worry, no food. Wow. No break. No break. What's mm -hmm. your reaction to some of the, the comments that refugees don't work hard or shouldn't, that are draining our system? What's your reaction to that? I feel like refugee and immigrants does a lot of job 
a lot of things for the United States, like the farm work. That's what they do, even though they get little money, they work for that. And then, like, like she, um, like where she works, Bill Seal works. She has really good skills, and she's not lazy. And she has skills, and some people in the United States can't even fix their bed, can't even put blanket and stuff over there. So, hello. I don't, yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a show of hands around the table. Yeah, so I feel really really mad when hearing that. It just pissed me off because we, refugee works really hard, and coming here is like an opportunity for them, and they're gonna work really hard to get um, a better life. It's. I think it's amazing to me how we think about or what, what what we think about when we say the word skills in in the US and it's I think sometimes we very narrowly define what that means um, and don't give even a remotely amount of, of, of credit uh, a, a remote amount of, of the, the proper credit due to people who come here who we like to call uneducated, who we like to call unskilled, who are actually um, in many ways running the country that we live in. It's a willingness. It's a willingness to work uh, a certain way that should be valued, hmm. which Balancilla just perfectly explained. Yeah. She feels like this is easy compared to what she ever had to do in her past life. I think there's also just perhaps as a way of winding down the conversation, I think the skills of being a good human being are about friendship, are about perseverance, are about picking yourself up and going again. Um, and I think we have a lot to learn from refugees and immigrants around being human at least that's what I have learned from the work that I've done. Makes me a better human being. That is a great way of putting it. And I would also add that it makes you realize how easily things can change, that all the people who we meet through here, at one point they had a home, they had a life in a town that in many cases they'd been in for many generations, and it seemed like that was going to be their life. And then somebody knocked on their door with a gun, took everything away, and they were running for their life. And Americans can't really think that way because it hasn't really happened in our country. To us Americans, it's happened to other people. But so it's, for the average white American, let's say, it's pretty mind-blowing to, to meet someone who's been through that and then realize we're not immune to that. Things change. And that's one of the, you were ending it on a really happy note. And then I just turned it into kind of a handmaid's tale kind of thing. So I apologize, but <laughs> it's okay. But, uh, the, but both of those and, and the perseverance of, of getting through that and then, and then coming here and starting over is incredibly inspiring. Well, I, th I, I mean, I think that's totally appropriate to, to talk about that. The, the, the idea of seeing people around us in our midst who have struggled, who've suffered, um, who are suffering, who are living out on the streets, who have come from places where everything was taken away from them, um, and us being very uncomfortable with 
the the feeling that that could be us uh, that that we as human beings share equal vulnerability so in some sense we share equal responsibility as well and that's scary for a society that prides itself on self-sufficiency on exceptionalism on wealth and control um, and I think that's by and large what these mentorship relationships can teach us uh, they can they can teach us that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to let other people in. Um, it's okay to to face those kinds of fears, and and it's okay uh, to recognize that you you share responsibility and you and you celebrate with one another, and that can surprise surprise lead to being a happier human being. And so I just wanna I wanna thank all of you for the time that you've spent here with us and helping us to better understand the Common Ground exhibition through your own experiences and perspectives and um, helping us better to understand what uh, really truly opening yourself up to and being in a relationship with um, the immigrants and refugees who oftentimes have lived longer in this city than the people listening to this podcast <laughs> have um, and, and challenging you know who really is a local mm -hmm. here and who's who's an immigrant who's a refugee um and just blurring those lines for yourself and and and, and taking uh joy and, and celebrating and blurring those lines by actually being in relationship with somebody and and opening yourself up to supporting each other so thank you so much and uh i'm signing off thank you thank you Thank you for listening to the final episode of Reflections on Common Ground. If you haven't heard the first three episodes featuring the Students in the Rise program at David Douglas High School, I recommend checking it out. Please also visit youtube.com slash Portland Art Museum to see a video of Ayan, one of the students featured on the podcast, reciting an original poem in the Common Ground galleries at Portland Art Museum. And as the exhibition comes to a close, I recommend visiting fuzzleshake.org. That's F-A-Z-A-L-S-H-E-I-K-H dot O-R-G to find out how you can see Fuzzle's photographs. Reflections on Common Ground wouldn't be possible without the support of ERCO, OpenSignal, and StreamPDX. Both Portland Meet Portland and the Portland Art Museum extend their gratitude. Links for the websites to these organizations can be found in this episode's description. Thank you.